Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. One of the things I've been very open about is my mental health. We have stigmas in our culture, which not only affect those who struggle with mental health conditions, but also treatments for those conditions. Dr. Dave Rabin helps people face these stigmas. He's a board-certified psychiatrist, neuroscientist, entrepreneur, and inventor who has studied resilience and the impact of chronic stress on our lives for over 15 years. Dr. Rabin and his team collaborate with clients at the Apollo Clinic, empowering clients to take control of their mental and physical health by tapping into our abilities to adapt and heal ourselves. Experts are warning teens and younger kids all across the country uh, that they are in the midst of a real mental health crisis. That's right. According to the latest National Health Care and Quality Disparities Report, nearly 20% of children between ages 3 to 17 have a mental, emotional, developmental, or behavioral disorder. The pandemic created an epidemic of depression, but doctors are finding great success with ketamine compared to antidepressants. What is the real potential potential of wearable technology in helping with mental health issues? Uh, That's a good question. I think that there's a huge potential. I think we've, we've just barely begun to understand what that potential really could be. While the social stigma around mental health is lessened over time, we've still got a long way to go. The phrase, it's all in your head, can sometimes be used to dismiss people's mental health struggles. Hi, my name is Dr. Dave Rabin, and I'm here to cure mental illness. Sorry, not sorry. Dr. Dave, welcome to Sorry Not Sorry. Thank you so much for being with us. I'd love for you to start out by telling our audience a bit about who you are and what you do. Well, first off, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I am a bit of a rare breed. I'm a psychiatrist and neuroscientist who has an expertise in chronic stress, performance, and recovery. And I focus my clinical practice and my research on 
developing new treatments for treatment-resistant mental illnesses, which are now, unfortunately, the majority of mental illnesses that we face in Western medicine are mental illnesses that don't respond to two or more gold standard treatments. And so this is the folks who struggle to get better with Western treatments are folks who've always been very interesting to me and trying to figure out more ways and more natural ways to help people recover and heal. We hear a lot, especially with the report that just came out about mental health and the crisis that's in the country and especially how it's impacting young people. We're issuing this advisory to sound the alarm. Surgeon General Vivek Morthy says there's not enough evidence to show social media platforms are safe enough for kids and teens. We see rates of depression and anxiety and suicide and loneliness going up among young people. And I'm concerned that social media is an important driver of that youth mental health crisis. Uh, this is the defining public health issue of our time, youth mental health. Can you just give us a general overview of mental health and the landscape in the United States? And also, it's changing. How is it changing? Why is it changing? What is happening? That's a great question. I think that, just to keep it simple, the challenges we're facing in the mental health community right now, or in general, the public health community, the wellness of our of everyone, uh, the single biggest problem that we are facing, which is also the single most expensive problem we're facing right now, is untreated mental illness. We know from the statistics that there are more people now suffering from and meeting diagnostic criteria for mental illness than ever before. And that number is only going up rapidly. And we know that in that same group and in a group that's just next to that group, the number of people that have substance abuse issues and who have addiction issues or who just use too much. Uh, substance that could be harmful, anything from even alcohol and tobacco and things like that are actually skyrocketing. And we don't have good solutions for it. But my specialty as a psychiatrist is as an addiction and trauma psychiatrist uh, in my training. And one of the things that we see that's really contributing to this is, you know, effectively loneliness or disconnection. So people feeling like they are not able to bond or have these really authentic, meaningful interactions with other human beings where we see eye to eye and we really like get each other um, and we can trust each other. And we know that we're all human first before we're anything else. And we're really like looking out for each other in our communities. A lot of that has been lost, unfortunately. And it doesn't mean we can't get it back. But I think we were already struggling with these issues in the Western world prior to COVID. And then when COVID hit, isolation became a big issue. We all know that things did not get better. They got a lot worse in this area. And so anything that we can do to strengthen our connection to each other and our sense of connectedness in our communities is critically important to our health. It's wild, right? I was in the airport the other day, and I'm of that generation that remembers before the internet and before handheld devices. And I just looked around while I was waiting for my flight, and there were hundreds of people in this airport. Everyone had their head buried in their device. Everyone. There was zero interaction happening unless it was like a mom running after a toddler or something like that, which is also a very lonely thing, I think. I have been very open about my diagnosis, which is a few. I have generalized anxiety disorder with complex post-traumatic stress and OCD and panic attacks. And I got to tell you, especially when I first revealed this, because for me, yeah, I'd had panic attacks when I was in my 20s, but I was just like, okay, whatever. But it wasn't until after I had Milo, my son, that 
everything just came tumbling down. And I think it was because, you know, I never treated what was happening in the first place. After bedtimes, it's so silent. I didn't realize how loud silence can be. And that was really tough. And I don't actually know what I expected motherhood to be. And I don't know how easy I expected motherhood to be. But I just never expected it to be lonely in any way. I think the loneliness, because there is something very lonely about those first few months of having a baby. It's like you're in this postpartum cocoon and it's the same thing every day, and you have this super, it's not lack of connection, it's this super connection, right? You have this baby that's looking up at you, that's feeding off your body, and it's totally dependent on you. You're waking up at three o'clock in the morning, which is the stillest, most quiet part of any day. It's dark, and I don't know, I just, I hit a wall. But I do know when I was, I felt like I needed to be public about it, and this was I don't know, maybe nine years ago. And then and now there are real stigmas in the United States that people with mental health conditions have to confront every day. And yet on the other side of that, there's this dichotomy because it's also never been more mainstream. And what I mean by that is like I'm writing this script and the girl in it, she has OCD and she's like, it's never been more mainstream. Like people use these terms that we diagnose other people by, you know, flippantly, like, oh my God, I'm so OCD. I have to have everything the way, you know? And so we've destigmatized it by making it less critical or important. And I don't know how to combat, like, how to get people to see it, take it seriously, but also destigmatize at the same time because you run the risk of. When you destigmatize it, you run the risk of taking away its weight. You're absolutely right. And it's a very strange time for people with mental health issues and for those of us who treat mental health issues because of what you described. And I'm so glad to hear that you were able to have the courage to come forward and talk about yourself in that way and what you were struggling with, because it's people like you who really help to dispel the shame around the narrative that it's not okay to have a mental illness or that you're a less of a person if you have a mental illness. That's absolutely not true. And the other thing, the other common misconception is that there's something wrong with us that we were born with. That's the reason why we have a mental illness and we're never going to get better. And I think that what neuroscience is and the science of psychiatry and psychology are really starting to show and have been starting to show over the last 20, 30 years, that's very exciting, is that we actually have the ability to make by changing the way we think about mental illness and what's causing it, we have the ability to actually not just treat it all the time and then give people lifelong diagnoses, but we have the ability to get people to what we call remission or symptom freedom. And that's really the goal. And that's always been the goal from our perspective as clinicians, but I think patients, that hasn't been passed on. You would never say to someone with a broken bone to just ignore their pain. That'll just pass one day. You would never say about someone who has cancer that they're just faking it. It's just all for attention. You would never say to someone in a wheelchair, just stand up, it's all in your head. You would obviously never say that to any of these kinds of people because they didn't ask for it in their life. It's not like they chose to put it in their life. It should be the same for any other sickness or disability. No one asks, 
to put this into their life, so they can't just snap out of it. Unfortunately, many people with mental illness have been told at least once in their life, just snap out of it. The medication style of prescription that we use and the way we treat uh, mental health issues has caused a lot of problems where people learn, rather than learning to rely on what we have in here to heal ourselves, knowing that we have the ability to heal without anything from the outside, we start to rely on medication and doctors and things from the outside. And it's not to say that those are all bad. Those They're very good use cases for those things. There are a lot of people who do get benefit from a lot of mental health medication. That being said, it's not the only option. And if it changes the way that we think about mental health, where it makes us think we need it to heal, then it actually can be destructive to the healing process and can squelch or decrease our own power in our own healing process. So when we talk about destigmatizing mental illness now, based on what the latest neuroscience is showing, we actually talk more about not the diagnostic terms that you were mentioning earlier, like the depression, the anxiety, the OCD, but we talk more about trauma. Because the diagnostic terms like the OCD and the depression and the depressive disorder and the PTSD, those terms are clinical terms. Those are our words that were created for us as clinicians to pass on and communicate about patterns of illness and how we treat them better. But they were never really meant to be passed down to the average person or to any patient. They were meant for billing and they were meant for, you know, doctors talking to doctors and other clinicians. But what we're talking about with our clients and what the data is showing is that all of these different mental illnesses, whether they're called depression or they look like PTSD or they look like anxiety disorder or OCD, they come from unprocessed, unresolved traumatic events. And our bodies store that information and they come out in all these different ways, ADHD too. And so when we talk about destigmatizing mental illness in a meaningful way without it losing its significance, what we really should be changing the language to is let's talk about trauma. Right, let's talk about challenging events where we have had one or multiple very meaningful or significant, intense, challenging events that we weren't given adequate support afterwards. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Also, generational trauma. The trauma doesn't even have to be our trauma. It could be our family's trauma that is passed down. I mean, I have traumatic experiences that happened to me and then traumatic experiences that happened to my mother that she never healed herself, that she passed her anxiety about onto me and her children. There's so many things that are going on. And I think support is the right word. I was never given support my friend said to me, you know what? You need to go into deep healing and the only way out is in. And I was like, oh, okay. And like I 51 50 myself. That's how bad it was. And I found this one guy while I was in this public uh, mental health facility who was like, let's sit down. Because I was going to the emergency room with these panic attacks because nobody was helping me. And they're scary. 
And they're scary. You don't know if you're dying or what. And I had this baby at home and I felt like the only place I could be taken care of was in the emergency room. So anyway, I 5150 myself and this guy that was this doctor that was there was like, I really think this is hormone related. You just had a baby. And I was like, and I miscarried before the baby. And he was like, yeah, so that can mess with your hormones. I have this one doctor I'd love to refer you to that only deals with hormones and women during hormonal stages of their lives. It's puberty, during pregnancy, postpartum, and menopausal women. And that's all he did, his entire practice. And he saved my life. That's amazing. Dr. Sparego saved my life. Nobody was connecting the dots between, especially then, this was, again, 11 years ago, connecting the dots between postpartum depression and anxiety Because I didn't have that like, oh, I want nothing to do with my baby. I had the like, all I want to do is hold my baby. All I want to do is fold his clothes. You can't touch my baby. I'm holding my baby. You know what I mean? Like I didn't put him down for the first two years of his life. I had the opposite of it, but it was definitely it. And I'm so grateful for him, but also that there's all of these things that are happening now in, in mental health. We've learned something profound about what's sometimes called the plasticity of the brain. That the brain is malleable, is able to change. We can take that up and scale that up to levels where it's actually changes in the brain circuitry, how brain regions are communicating with each other over time and as a result of environmental influences. We think of it in changes in synapses, how these neurons are actually touching each other and communicating with each other. And we know in depression that the number and the strength of these interconnections decreases. With ketamine, we see a regrowth in the interconnectedness and number of these synapses to connect with each other. Ketamine, I know, has helped people who are resistant to normal drug intervention. Actually, first, will you just describe the drug to us, what it is, how it's used, things like that? Sure. And yeah, sometimes it just requires us to think a little bit outside the box to solve these problems. And unfortunately, modern medicine hasn't trained doctors as well to think outside the box. Back in the day, we used to do that all the time. Also, with the pharmaceutical companies pushing their drugs, that's a whole other part of this. Right. It creates a very rigid framework for physicians. And so I think we have a lot of other tools, to your point, right? That's the idea is we have so many other tools. We have ketamine. I am also, I didn't mention this earlier, I am one of the few psychiatrists who is trained in ketamine-assisted therapy and MDMA-assisted therapy nationwide. I also train other clinicians to do that work because there's very few of us who actually train others. And it's a very important field. And coming out of that work and the understanding of how ketamine and MDMA in the therapy environment, which are drugs that are not administered daily, they're administered every couple weeks or every several weeks with intensive psychotherapy before, during, and after, the medicine really serves as a therapy amplifier by amplifying effectively and supporting how safe we feel in the therapeutic experience and in our own skin. And so when you use these medicines, we don't often, not that many people will talk about the similarities between medication like and experiences like ketamine and MDMA therapy. But one thing they have in common, which is a big part of my research, is that they all support and amplify the safety bond that we have and the trusting bond between me, the clinician, the provider, and whoever the patient is so that 
you can effectively as a patient or a client feel safe enough to go back inside yourself, which might feel like a scary place sometimes or all the time, and go back and reevaluate some of the ways that we've made meaning around ourselves, the way we think about ourselves, the way we've been taught to think about ourselves and see ourselves, and what the experiences we've had over the course of our lives have taught us. And when we have the opportunity to feel safe enough to reevaluate that, then we can start to really become like bring forth that vulnerability, expose our vulnerability. So here's the amazing thing about your brain. It's made to rewire itself all the time. This is called neuroplasticity. Scientists used to think that after childhood, our brain was pretty much locked in place. But now that we have better imaging technology, we can literally see how the brain changes depending on how we use it. And that unlocks all of the healing in mental illness recovery, which is absolutely astounding. The challenge with these medicines is that as great as they work when delivered properly and that they're incredibly safe, they're really often expensive and hard for people to access. There's almost no studies in children of these medicines in the mental health space. And so that's actually from studying how these work, that actually led to the discovery of Apollo at the University of Pittsburgh, which I'm wearing on my chest. And I'm also the chief medical officer and co-founder of Apollo Neuroscience. And we developed this technology to also, by understanding that safety pathway through MDMA research and ketamine research to activate the safety response in our bodies through soothing touch that help to calm the body and help people feel safe enough to heal and safe enough to be vulnerable and safe enough to get through their day. Listen, I don't want this to sound like an infomercial, but I got to say, I have a little girl who suffers from anxiety. She started to get a panic attack last night, and I put this device on her, the Apollo on her. She was asleep in five minutes. Yes, it works. It was pretty amazing. And she was like, okay, I'll try. Because, you know, at that age, they just want to feel good. They don't want anything else. I think so much focus is on how technology is harming us, humanity, especially with AI and social media and all the things where we hear the disconnect and all those things. I think the only way out of that is to actually lean into how technology can actually help us. Without a doubt. And that's the entire focus of our work is that we have so much access to technology, advanced technology, things that we have never had access to in the history of humankind. And we have that now and it's cheaper than ever. And it's more accessible to people than ever. And in the case of people like your daughter last night, other than holding her and sitting with her and rocking her back to sleep yourself, what other tools do you have as a mom? right? There really isn't anything else. You don't want to give your kid medication. It's really hard to teach kids that age to meditate and deep breathe and do the mindfulness exercises for falling back asleep and self-soothing. And so tools like this that are safe and can give some of that sense of safety back by harnessing technology and what we can do with neuroscience and sound and vibration are really exciting because, again, it's something you can use for anybody. And kids need it more than ever because Kids aren't the best candidates for medication and the same with elderly folks and the same with pregnant women and postpartum women. And if you can avoid medication in those populations, then that's a huge win. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And just to reiterate, we're not saying that medication is bad. Medication is good. I'm still on a bunch of medication and it's not bad. But I look at all of this as just tools in the toolbox, right? And some tools work for some parts of your life. Unfortunately, things like benzos and all of that, they mess with your brain. They mess with your sex drive, all of the things. We had Michael Pollan on the podcast and talked so much about the pathways in the brain and how they get so calcified and how things like ketamine and LSD and psilocybin and MDMA are helping the pathways get reestablished so that you're not falling into the same rut. What advice do you give to someone to try to get out of the rut? to take the steps necessary to access care? Or even what advice would you give to the people who love these people? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's a lot of advice that I can give. This is my job. But I'll focus on the first things, which are the most important, which are effectively, if you think about what mental illness or being diagnosed with a mental illness from a doctor does to us, it makes us feel powerless to recover on our own. And that is one of the most common things that I hear my patients telling me is that they feel like they're stuck with this diagnosis forever. And if they don't take the medicine the doctor told them to take every day or the multiple medicines, that they're never going to get better. And I think that what we're seeing from, again, the latest research in this area is, which is really exciting and hopeful, is that it dispels that concept. And so the thing that I first tell everyone when they start working with me is, you have the ability to heal yourself. You don't know sometimes what to say, and you're basically walking on eggshells. Sometimes it can shock people if someone says you're having a good day. They just expect you to say, yes, Al, I'm okay. And I, I said, no, I'm not. And some people can get taken aback. oh, oh, oh. And I think there's the fear of saying the wrong thing. You know, what do I know about mental health? And there is nothing more important as a human being than understanding that. And this is taught not just by me. This is ancient knowledge from Hippocrates and Maimonides, some of the fathers of Western medicine and ancient Eastern and tribal traditions. They all say the same thing at the core, which is that the source of healing comes from the person seeking to be healed. And all that requires us to do to kickstart that process is just to understand that, that that's possible that we, even though we felt maybe really crappy for a really long time, maybe we don't even remember what it feels like to feel good or feel like ourselves. If we just remember that and then believe in it, then we start to know it as part of ourselves. We start to know the part of ourselves that wants to heal. What have you been sick for so long with a mental health issue that you can't remember it? It's the same thing. Because even if you don't remember what it feels like to feel good or to feel like yourself, all you have to do is understand what the science is saying and what the science has. Said. And the science is saying 
from a basic understanding perspective, you have the ability to feel good. You have the ability to heal yourself. So let me give you some examples of the kinds of things that we teach people that they can do to jumpstart that process. So the core of all anxiety and suffering in large part that we face in the Western world that most people don't talk about, and I wasn't taught it this way in my training either, but discovered this through seeing thousands of patients, is the core of anxiety and feeling uncomfortable is that we feel out of control. Now, feeling out of control evolutionarily comes from feelings of uncertainty. And that's really important that we want our stress response system to kick on when we are uncertain of things going on in our environment, because millions of years ago, if we were uncertain of stuff in our environment, that could mean like certain demise for us, right? That could be the end. And so we have to quickly tune into stuff that's uncertain. But most things, because we don't have the bears chasing us in the jungle anymore, really, we don't have the same kinds of real survival threats we had back then. We have the news and we have too many responsibilities and we have too many expectations and we have, you know, kids screaming and all these other things that are setting us off. And so we have to remember that we have control over our attention and what we actually allow into our consciousness. And our attention is one of our most important skills and valuable skills that we have as human beings. That's simply why every single advertising company on the face of the earth spends billions of dollars trying to captivate our attention. Because what we pay attention to is what enters into our consciousness and becomes part of us. So if we spend time, and we only have so much time every day to pay attention to anything, if we spend 70% of that time, which I would argue is probably about the amount the average human being spends thinking about things that are outside of our control, then we feel out of control and uncertain 70% of the time right? That means that 70% of the time we're anxious and sometimes even more. So our fear response is kicked on. So how do you fix that? Well, if you understand that just spending time thinking about things that we don't have control over is the source, then you fix that by spending time thinking about the things that you do have control over. So what do we have control over in any moment? Our breath, our movement, what we listen to, and what we produce in terms of sound, song, what we say or sing. We can produce sound. What we touch, touching ourselves, getting touched from a loved one consensually, holding a pet, and then what we put into our bodies in terms of nutrition and sleep. Those are the six pillars of control. And so if we focus on those things, even just by reminding ourselves, hey, I'm noticing that I'm thinking about all the stuff that I don't have any say in. I don't have any control over this right now. I'm just going to gently redirect my attention to stuff I have control over. All of a sudden, we start to feel more in control and our anxiety dramatically goes down. And the Apollo is a very powerful tool to help people do that because all of those techniques bring us back into our bodies and our bodies are always present in the moment. Our minds can be anywhere. So it's these kinds of practices combined with the modern understanding of the way we feel and how we can control that, that regardless of whether you remember what it feels like to feel like yourself or not, you can restart that process of healing at any moment. It's really just about taking control over your attention. I love it. It makes so much sense. And to have another tool in the toolbox is super important. Finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is that the, in the same vein of what we're talking about, that we have long been taught that mental illness is something we're born with. There's like a genetic thing that causes an imbalance of neurotransmitters in our brains that results in us 
getting diagnosed with mental illness and getting sick. And what is really hopeful is that all of the latest studies of this topic have shown that there is no significant evidence to support that there is a genetic reason for over 99% of mental illness. So think about that for a moment, right? That means that if we might've been taught that we were born with a neurotransmitter imbalance in our genes that is causing us to be sick and causing us to be sick in the long term, what the data now shows is that if you look across the board, there is no significant or reliable evidence to support that theory. And so that means what is actually responsible? We can ask the question, right? What is actually contributing? Why do we have mental illness? It's unprocessed, unresolved trauma. And that's what all the studies are showing. And if we know that's the case, then we know that we can reverse it because trauma is one or multiple intense, meaningful experiences that we've had that we perceive as threatening or fearful that we haven't been supported through. And if you look at the psychedelic medicine work, if you look at the work of what we're doing with Apollo, what you can see is people can get better, even if other things haven't worked. And when you look at the MDMA therapy results with just completed phase three clinical trials with the FDA, just three doses of MDMA and 12 weeks of psychotherapy result in people, 55% of people in the phase two trial are no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD after having PTSD for 17.6 years with no relief, 55% of those people are no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD two months out. Then you follow those people to one year out with no additional treatment that was administered by the study group. They could do whatever they want. There was no additional treatment. That number of 55% goes up to 67%. We have never seen anything like that in the history of psychiatry. Like literally never. It is the most paradigm-shifting, phenomenal finding that we have ever seen, thanks to Rick Doblin and the MAPS team. So when you think about how that's working, we're seeing people get better after treatment has stopped, even better. And that is probably the single most hopeful thing that we can all take with us into the future of the way we think about mental health. It allows us to potentially think about using the cure word for the first time, which we've never been allowed to use in mental illness. Well, Dr. Dave, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Absolutely my pleasure. So I want to start off my talk with a quick disclaimer. <laughs> I am very excited to be here, but I'm also incredibly terrified. Um, I'm speaking about mental health and mental illness. So that means I'll be talking about a subject that you all know is taboo and something that society doesn't really like mentioning. And while I'm not afraid of people's judgment anymore because of what I have been through, I am afraid of the consequences that come out of that judgment. I'm afraid of being isolated. I am terrified of feeling like something's my fault when it wasn't. And I'm also afraid of being ousted for going through something that's completely normal.
The mental health crisis we face in America will take innovative thinkers and the courage to break through our own biases if we want to overcome it. It's going to be hard. Not only are the challenges in our laws making it hard for breakthrough treatments like ketamine to reach the patients who so desperately need them, but they are deeply woven into the very culture. Our language, for example, makes free use of words like crazy or insane to describe events which are out of the ordinary. We often shun those who struggle, treating them as a burden. It will require us to be our best selves to break down barriers of politics, class, and culture. I believe we can do it. I hope you'll join me in trying. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.